Well, tonight uh, we're looking at this, uh, we're continuing our series through the Ten Commandments, and we hit number two. So before, um, I'm going to read the, uh, the passage from Exodus chapter 20, uh, just that, that is around this second commandment. So Exodus chapter 20, verses four to six. Do not make idols of any kind, whether in the shape of birds or animals or fish. You must never worship or bow down to them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not share your affection with any other God. I do not leave unpunished the sins of those who hate me, but I punish the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generations. But I lavish my love on those who love me and obey my commands, even for a thousand generations. Let's pray together. Lord, we come tonight to meet with you. We come tonight to once again remind ourselves that you come to give life and life to the full. In this moment now, we pray, speak to us. At this time now, we pray, Lord, meet with us through your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin tonight, really, thinking about what we've bought or been given. Do they make us fully alive? With a quote from one of the early thinkers in the church, a man called Irenaeus. And he said this, The glory of God is a man or a woman fully alive. The glory of God is a man or a woman fully alive. Jesus in John, chapter, uh, John 10 verse 10 said this, a well-known verse, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it in its fullness, in its abundance. God's intention for us is to be fully alive. That's, he made us to be fully alive in him. The only way that can happen is if we're rightly connected and in relationship with him. Genesis 1.26, come to the start of the Bible, to the creation story, and we meet uh, God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. There's an intimacy there. And in describing that creation moment, um, Genesis 1.26 tells us that we as human beings are made in the image of God. God says, let us make man in our image. What does that mean? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? We might hear that quite a lot. Well, I think it means this. It means that we have God's stamp of approval all over us. We have God's stamp of approval all over us. His yes to us. His love for us. His affirmation of us. It means that we are known intimately by God. Each one of us individually. Because we're made in the image of God. We're known, every part of us, because God has made us and formed us. None of us are out of his sight. The second thing is, is that we're made to be in relationship with God. If we're made in his image, then we're made to be in relationship with him. Because he wanted us to be stamped and marked with him. And then finally, is that we're created to become more like him. For that image to grow and flourish within us. If you like, created to become more like Jesus. And this commandment here tells us that we're not to make another image of anything else to worship. In fact, it says this, don't make an idol or an image of any kind. It says, do not, and one of the translations says, do not make for yourself an image of any kind. We don't need an image of anything. 
You know, an idol is anything in heaven, on earth, or in the sea, which really just encompasses the whole of creation, the whole of life itself, the whole of the cosmos, anything that can take the place of God in our lives. could be anything or anyone uh, that prevents us from experiencing this fullness of life. The glory of God is man or woman fully alive. Anything that takes away, if you like, sucks the life out of us uh, is an idol. It can, can include anything, not just the kind of obvious things. If we might travel back thousands of years and see temples or whatever it is with different shrines and idols or go around the world today, we might you know, find uh, idols and, and whatever else, and we might think, well, that's what an idol is. But actually, I think it's more than that. An idol can be anything, I think, including our career. It can be a romantic relationship, possessions, our family. It can be a whole number of different things. These things become the central cause for our existence and sometimes are something that we can't live without. They're not necessarily evil things in themselves at all. In fact, they're often good things that become the supreme thing. They take God's place in our lives. Their demands become more than anything else. I'd like us to watch um, a clip from the film Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. It was on TV last night, so I don't know if anyone's watched it. It's the, first, it's the start of the film, and it, really what it gives is the story of, of, of how Gollum became Gollum. It's a caricature, isn't it, really, of, of, of what can happen when something becomes our obsession. Gollum is consumed by this ring of power. The whole point of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, trilogy is this, the central thing in it is the ring of power and, and the, the, it needs to be destroyed because it's so destructive. Anyone who gets hold of it is influenced and changed by it in some way. But for Gollum, he sees this ring and in his life, it's the only thing that matters. It becomes the center of his gaze and attention. He kills his friend to get the ring. He hides in the cave so no one else can get it. And as you heard on the screen, he said, you know, it's cursed us. This thing that I thought would bring life, that I've given my all to, it's taken everything from me. And in in the process, you know, he pursues Frodo and Sam. We know the the story of the film, I guess, uh, to get the ring back for himself. And ultimately, it costs him his life. And the ring is destroyed. But in that process, he becomes less and less of the person he was um, and less and less alive, really. He thinks that the ring will bring him life, but all it does is slowly destroy him. And, and in, in a kind of extreme way, that's the picture that the Bible paints about idolatry and about idols. Um, Paul, in Acts 17, he arrives in Athens and he sees this whole number of different gods that are worshipped in a, in a city where there were gods for everything, for, for business and commerce, to fertility and agriculture, to the sea, uh, for trade, for travel. There were gods everywhere. Um, gods including the god of Athena, Aphrodite, who was the goddess of beauty, Ares, the god of war, Artemis, the goddess of fertility and wealth, and Herphaestus, the god of craft, craftsmanship. There were, there were a whole number of different gods found in that city. Well, we might think, well, hang on, that's ancient Athens. There's nothing like that today. We aren't giving our lives to serve a god like that or a goddess like that. But I wonder if we really are that different. I mean, Aphrodite's the goddess of beauty. I wonder if today we, we could look at um, some areas of, of life and society and say, actually, we really do sacrifice a lot to this goddess or god of beauty. The body image you know, that's, that we're, we're given to us and we're told we have to look a certain way, be a certain shape. So it means that we spend our money and our time and our energy and we give our all to it and thinking that once I get to that particular shape or size or, or 
physique or whatever it might be that I'll be happy and satisfied and we find chasing after it, we never can catch it. Maybe it's shopping and consumerism. I, I, I shop, therefore I am. What I buy determines my, my value. Money and career, I work, therefore I am. What I earn gives me worth. That my pay sheet at the end of the month determines how important I am. But that doesn't really give us value, does it? That doesn't really bring life and life in its fullness on its own. That's a sole aim in life. What about relationships? Who I am determines uh, who I am. Who I'm with even determines who I am. Who I love makes me whole. I determine my value and worth on another person. And that can be fickle and changing, can't it? What about power? Who I influence? You know, who I'm able to tell what to do. That's how I define how my worth and value. I think sometimes we can, you know, kind of relegate this kind of commandment to sort of 2,000 years ago plus and think, well, that's for someone else another time. But I think we, we see it in our own society. Um, an idol demands three things from us, really. It demands our love, that wholehearted devotion and commitment. It de- demands our trust, where we find our security. And it demands our obedience. It, it asks us to sacrifice for it. But it delivers next to nothing in return. Remember what Jesus said. The thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have it in, a, in, in all its abundance. We bring glory to God when we come fully alive in Christ. And that's why this commandment exists. That's why it's in this, in this list. Because God intends for us to be fully alive. And we only come fully alive when we're connected with him. Anything that pulls us away from God is an idol and needs dealing with. And the reason this command seems so strong is that God wasn't, doesn't want us or intend for anyone to shrink and be anything less than fully human. You know, worshipping anything apart from God, it mars the image of God within us and God's determined to recreate us in his likeness. St. Augustine, one of the early church theologians, said this, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. So, If we're made in the image of God, if we're created for a relationship with him, if we're to worship and to be like Jesus, then how do we become fully alive? How do we glorify God by being fully alive ourselves? How do we walk in this life to the full that Jesus offers? How do we get free from the things in life that would steal, kill and destroy and suck the life from us? I think there are a few things that the Bible tells us to do. The first is this, is that we're to encounter regularly the real Jesus. It's really... That's the first thing and most important thing. We just encounter daily Jesus again. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 tells us this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We'll come back to that word image, don't we? He is the picture of who God is. If we want to know what God is really like, truly like, we look at Jesus. We look at him, his life. In other words, if we want to know God, we know Jesus. Colossians again, verse, chapter 2, verse 9. In Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus doesn't just look a bit like God. He is God and reflects the entirety of who God is. In other words, if we're to know God for ourselves, we can only do that fully by getting to know Jesus better. 
And it's really important to encounter the real Jesus. I think there's a temptation in our society. There's lots of statistics and surveys done about how people seem to love Jesus but have trouble with religion. And, and they find, you know, they like this guy Jesus. He seems really cool. But there's a danger sometimes that we might make him in our own image or in the way we like him. I don't know if you've seen the, the uh, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the Chronicles of Narnia movie. I adore that film. I think it's one of my favourite. And there is one line in it which I'm sure you all know. It's Lucy and the Beaver are having, uh, I think it's Mr. Beaver having a conversation. And Lucy says to, to Mr. Beaver, Aslan, is he safe? And the Beaver replies, no, he's not safe, but he is good. He's not safe, but he is good. I think we need to allow the gospel stories about Jesus to come alive in our hearts each day. They need to come alive in us so that we can know who the real Jesus is. It's in the gospels that we see who he is and what he's done. And we see at regular intervals the disciples in their interaction with Jesus. And they wanted to sort of make him in their own image, didn't they, at different times. Peter, when Jesus announced he was going to be crucified, told Jesus that was a really bad idea. And Jesus responded quite firmly, didn't he? Get behind me, Satan. You've not got in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then they would see Jesus do something like calm a storm, which they knew was a pointer that only God had power over nature. And their response was, who is this man that he can do this? And I think as we live our daily lives with Jesus, as we daily take time just to get to know him a little better, to allow the book to speak to us about him, I think we'll find this incredible, daring, radical, strange, wonderful, inexplicable, unstoppable, marvellous, unsettling, disturbing, caring, but powerful man, son of God. I think we need to put ourselves in that same place that the disciples found themselves in the boat when the storm was calmed by Jesus, saying, what kind of man is this? We need to allow Jesus once again to draw us to himself. And maybe today we're in need of that new encounter with Jesus. Even though over Christmas we've celebrated his birth and his arrival and, and we're, we're, we're kind of, he's in our focus, I guess. We still need that personal, real encounter again with him. So the first thing, we need to encounter the real Jesus. The second thing is we need to worship him. If we worship Jesus, then we will become more like him. There's a sort of theme through the Bible about worship and it says that we become like the thing we worship. We become like the thing or the person we worship. God's intention for us is that we become more like Jesus. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, uh, we all with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory, uh, are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As we worship, we become more like Jesus. As we reflect his glory, we bask in it and grow like him. To become more like Jesus means to become fully human, fully alive, and we do that through worship. And we worship Jesus just as we, uh, we would in any other way, uh, with the idea with idols, what they ask from us, we worship Jesus, we love him. We give him that wholehearted devotion. We trust him and we obey him. So what does that mean? Practically, how does that apply to us? Well, I think to love someone, to give yourself wholeheartedly to them, it takes an act of commitment, an initial act of commitment, just to say, yes to Jesus, I will follow you. Yes to Jesus, I want to serve you. 
It's about sacrifice, isn't it, love? The word love in, in the Greek agape, which appears more often in the New Testament, is about sacrifice, self-giving love. It's not just the, the, the sort of sentimental feeling or the emotional attachment, it's about sacrifice. A willingness to give ourselves to God. Paul says, you know, in view of all that God has done for you, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, every part of who you are, your personality, your job, your career, your relationships, every part of who you are, offer it to God. That's how we love Jesus. And for me, I don't know about you, it's a daily thing. In the morning, waking up saying, Jesus, today, help me to offer myself to you again. And it might mean just the conversation of going through the day. Jesus, I want to offer you my work today, offer you my marriage today, offer you my everyday things, my eating, my drinking, the things that I do. I want to offer them to you and I want to give you glory through them. Again, in 1 Corinthians, Paul, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, Paul says, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. It's the daily thing of saying, Lord, to love you means to give myself to you because I want to glorify you. A daily thing. And you know, as we do that, we realize just how utterly loved and accepted we are by God. We don't have to earn a thing. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more or less. There's nothing we can do to earn his love. We can know rest in our souls, as Jesus said. So we love Jesus as we worship him. The second thing is we trust him. I think we're looking for security, a sense of this isn't someone who's going to let us down. And, and maybe we've been let down in the past in different ways, or maybe you know, we, we find ourselves, you know, the job market's insecure, we can't put our trust in our work because we don't know whether that will still be there in 12 months' time. Even in other relationships, you know, different points, you know, we let one another down, don't we? We're not 100% dependable. But we know that we can put our trust in Jesus. And to put our trust is to lean our weight upon him. It's, to, it's that he's the guarantee for us. We find our identity in him. We believe what he says about us. And in the New Testament, what he says about us is incredible. That we're saved and, and made right and holy and we have hope and, and we're accepted and we're, there's no condemnation and nothing can separate us from his love and on and on it goes. We can trust Jesus we have a hope for the future, and in him that security and hope is certain, and we obey him. Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, you'll do what I say, and if we love him, we'll do what he tells us. Daily obedience. Jesus, what do you want me to do today? What a great prayer to pray each morning. I'm not a big fan of New Year's resolutions, so I never feel I can keep them up long enough. I don't know if you're the same. Maybe you make it past January. I rarely make it into January. But I can do it today because I can wake up this morning and say, Jesus, what do you want me to do today? It's amazing when you pray that prayer, what Jesus says. Friends that I've phoned up because I just felt God tell me to, who've been in need of a conversation. Not always noticeable, but knowing that they will appreciate a text saying I'm praying for them today. Just going to visit someone, just doing something because I felt Jesus tell me to do it. It's just a really simple thing and it's not a year's planning. It's on December the 31st tomorrow morning, I'm gonna pray, Jesus, what would you like me to do today? What would you like me to do today? When we read his words, what does it say to us? It tells us that we need to forgive others so that we can be forgiven. 
What do you want me to do today, Jesus? How can I forgive this person? How can I show grace and kindness to those I work with? How can I embrace into my family those I'm serving and helping? How can I put into practice what you tell me? It's in that daily life that we suddenly have those wow encounters. The disciples just thought they were crossing the lake and the storm hit and they thought they were going to die. In the midst of daily life, they proclaimed, who is this man? And as we take Jesus, as we go with Jesus, if you like, uh, into everyday life and suddenly we find ourselves with an opportunity to pray for someone and suddenly we see Jesus heal someone in our workplace or we just bring a word of comfort to someone and we see Jesus meet with them, we just go, who is this man? And why would he use someone like me? But the thing is, is that what he, that's what he loves and longs to do. So the first thing that we need to do, we need to encounter Jesus again every day. The second thing is we daily just need to worship him, to love him, to trust him, to obey him. And as we do that, there's the third thing, is that we can deal with those things in our lives that, that, that kind of may be idols, that may be as extreme as Gollum, you know, that drag us away and, and obsess on us. But for many of us, it's not like that. But we do notice those things that make us really scared and anxious in life, those things that grip us, that, that demand our imagination, our time and our attention more than they should. Maybe some of them are obvious and we know we could say right away what they are. But maybe for some of us, just as we spend more time with Jesus, we realize what they are. I finish with this last story. We know in the Bible there are two people who are rich. There are two really famous stories in the Gospels. There's the rich young ruler and there's Zacchaeus. And those stories occur really close to one another in Luke's Gospel. And the rich young ruler meets with Jesus and, and he, has an, he has an outward kind of appearance of, of religiosity. He, he, knows this, he knows what to say and what questions to ask. And Jesus challenges him at the point of where he's caught up his money, his riches. Give it away. Give it to the poor and you'll find life. And he walks away. And the Bible says he walks away sad. He walks away disappointed. And then we come to Zacchaeus, who's probably just as rich, who has a lot of power, but no friends. No one likes him. He's kind of a turncoat, a tax collector, the chief tax collector for that area. Jesus demands lunch with this chief of sinners. And we see the reaction of Zacchaeus. He, he just comes into the presence of Jesus and he goes, I'll get rid of it all. And what, what, is the, what is the overriding emotion we see with Zacchaeus? There's no sadness at all, but sheer joy that he could be privileged enough to bankrupt himself because he's met Jesus. So as we come into his presence, it's at those moments that we realize that other things, they don't give life and life to the full. Only Jesus can do that. And we embrace him. It's a daily thing. Can I give you permission to forget New Year's resolutions? But let's take up daily ones. Each day, Jesus, I want to love you. I put my trust in you. And I want to obey you. Jesus, I want to know you better. I want to deal with all the stuff in my life. As you show me, let's get rid of it. Because I want to be fully alive so that I can glorify you. This year, tomorrow, let's wake up and say, Jesus, let's, let's meet together. Jesus, I want to love you, serve you, trust you, obey you. And a life that's fully alive, what kind of effect will that have on those around us? A life that's fully alive in God, 
What will that mean for our families and our workplaces? I don't know about you, but I think I can manage tomorrow to wake up and do that. I'd love it if you join me. Because I think if I can come fully alive, more fully alive in God, I hope that that means that my family can come more fully alive in God. That my street would know something more of Jesus' love. And so and so on. So tonight, let's come to him. Let's know him. Let's encounter him. Because I believe he's here by his spirit and he wants to meet with us.